follow along in, on the screen as I read. Here's what uh, King Solomon writes at the end of his book. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning, shall we? Father, thank you for the privilege we have to uh, gather together on this uh, uh, Sunday morning to worship you. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that we have your word as the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Lord, there are many other uh, things we could be doing this morning, so thank you for those that are here to uh, worship you, to hear your word, and to hear your spirit speak to us. And so we pray that you would open up our our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Uh, May we be like Samuel that said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So we are listening, and uh, thank you for uh, all that you will uh, speak to us today. Lord, this morning we're thankful that we can pray for uh, the body of Christ, those that have needs. And Lord, this morning we thank you that we can bring uh, Catherine Walter's dad before um, you today, George Black, as he faces uh, hip replacement surgery tomorrow uh, down in Texas. Lord, thank you that you've divinely arranged this for this surgery to happen, and we thank you that we can commit him to you. Lord, may experience um, uh, the peace of God that comes uh, into our hearts and lives. Uh, Lord, be with the surgeons, and uh, Lord, I pray for um, healing for George, and I pray that you would just uh, bless him and uh, his wife as well. So thank you for... Um, the, the privilege we have to pray for one another and encourage one another in that way. And we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are going to look uh, into Ecclesiastes in just a little bit. But uh, one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it gives uh, the answer to the key questions of life. They're found right in Scripture, the, the questions of uh, where did I come from, the question of origins. Genesis chapter 1 answers that question. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It also answers the question of purpose. Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? What gives meaning to life? And we're going to look at that in just just a little bit from the book of Ecclesiastes. The the third main question is destiny. Where am I going? And of course, we know the Bible answers that question as well. That there's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shine. And that it's only through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that paid for our sin debt. When we turn to him, put our faith in him, repent of our sin, that he comes into our life and gives us new life. 
Well, this morning we're going to focus on that second question, why am I here? And this is vitally important uh, for young people, but for all of us. If there was a book in the Bible that I would encourage all of us, and especially young people, to get a grasp and understanding in, in the New Testament, it would be the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John describes who Jesus is. And it gives seven miracles that Jesus performed. And John concludes the Gospel of John by saying, many other miracles did Jesus work that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. And so the Gospel of John is vitally important, but if there was one book in the Old Testament that I would say young people and all of us need to get a grasp on and understand, it would probably be, from my opinion, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we're going to look at this message, Finding Purpose and Meaning in Life, as we understand what is God's purpose and meaning in life for us? So we're going to answer that question uh, right up front, and then we're going to look at that question through the lens of Solomon, who was on a journey to find purpose and meaning in life through the book of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to conclude by looking at um, Solomon's conclusion that we read in our scripture reading so let's think about the purpose of me in life, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into Solomon's journey. Uh, in 2004, uh, Rick Warren, who pastors a Saddleback Church out in California, wrote a book that became a bestseller and really revolutionized some of uh, thinking of uh, believers all around the world. It was translated into 85 languages. It sold 50 million copies. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 90 weeks in a row. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. And why did that book resonate and sell so many copies? It's because it it spoke to a need that everybody is looking for. What is the purpose of life? And so let me just share a, a few brief paragraphs from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. Chapter 1 is entitled, It All Starts With God. He quotes uh, Colossians 1.16, the paraphrase from the message. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in God and finds its purpose in God. And so Rick Warren starts this book and says, it all starts with God. And here's what chapter one says. Let me share a couple paragraphs. It's not about you. Now, the sooner we can understand that in our life, the better off we'll be. And um, it's interesting, graduation time, uh, where when you graduate, you get a lot of attention and a lot of accolades and rightly deserving. But we also need to realize that it's not about us. And so Rick Warren says, the search for purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point ourselves. We ask questions like, What do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? 
But focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. You must begin with God, your creator. You only exist because God wills that you exist. You are made by God and for God. And until we understand that, life will never make sense. It is only in God that we discover our origin, our identity, our meaning, purpose, significance, and destiny. Every other path leads to a dead end. And so Rick Warren, right off the bat, and any details, um, obviously a lot more, but he says uh, the purpose of life has to start with God, who he is. And uh, that was the journey that Solomon is on in the book of Ecclesiastes. This book was written 3,000 years ago, but it speaks to us today. So we know who Solomon was. There were uh, three king, the first three kings of the nation of Israel. Uh, remember that Israel wanted a king just like all the other nations around him, and God really wanted to be their king. But finally, he let them have what they wanted. And so Saul was the first king. He reigned for 40 years. And then David was king number two. And then David's son Solomon uh, became the third king of Israel. And we remember his story that he asked God, um, God came to him and said, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon asked God for wisdom and discernment. And so God granted Solomon great wisdom, but he also gave him, blessed him with wealth and riches uh, in addition to that. And so that's uh, the author of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes as really kind of an autobiography of his his life, his journey for search and meaning in uh, search for meaning in life. And he also wrote some other books in the Bible, uh, the Book of Proverbs, uh, the Book of the Song of Solomon. And there's great wisdom there. You see, what the Bible wants us to do, uh, and sometimes uh, we've heard people say. Uh, well, you know, you're just going to have to live and learn. You're going to have to go through the school of hard knocks. And the Bible says, no, we would prefer that you learn and then live. It's going to save you a lot of pain in your life. And so let's look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We need to understand much of it is written from the perspective of, he uses this phrase, life under the sun. It's written from a, a perspective of, uh, a earthly perspective of life apart from God. And so we need to understand that as we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, that that's the lens that Solomon is writing from and through. And this phrase, under the sun, is used over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's there 29 times. And so let's look at the premise from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Solomon writes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here's his premise statement. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Some of the translations translate that word emptiness. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And, and Solomon is, is making this premise statement like, I can't find true meaning and purpose in life. 
It's the uh, the futile attempt to be satisfied apart from God. And Solomon goes on this journey. And he says, I can't find ultimate meaning and satisfaction. And so as we just kind of overview the book, as we go through about the first six or seven chapters, he just begins to write about his search for meaning in life and all the things that he tried. And we know that Solomon had unlimited resources uh, to try to find his purpose and meaning in life. So let's look at the proof of his premise. And so he goes out on to um, detail um, many things that did not bring him satisfaction in life. The first one is the cyclical nature of life. Let me just let me just read this section. It's three through eleven of chapter one. He writes, "What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises." The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. The ear, it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there Anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. As you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, in his search for meaning under the sun, it can be a little bit of a depressing book, (laughs) you know, as you see his search for meaning in, in life. And Solomon's looking at life and he's looking at nature and he says, I just see one big cycle. Sunrise, sunset, the cycle of hydrology, the, the streams flow into the sea or into the ocean and they evaporate up and then it comes down as rain and it just happens over and over again. And then he comes to verse 11 and he says, no one remembers the former generations. No one's going to be remembered in this life. As I thought about that, I thought, I wonder if anybody here this morning knows the name of their great-great-grandfather. Does anybody know that name offhand? Oh, a couple of you do. Three got three three hands? Yeah, four hands. I'm so five hands. Do I see another? (laughs) But most of us, most of us don't. I remember my great grandfather's name. I could not tell you my great great grandfather's name, although I've got it written down somewhere in a genealogy book that my dad put together. But Solomon's point is ultimately we'll all be forgotten. So I should have said, who remembers their great 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 grandfather? I could eventually stump you. <laughs> but thank you for remembering uh, your great great-grandfather's name. So the cyclical nature of, of life. And then, and then Solomon goes on to try f- to find meaning in wisdom, knowledge. Uh, we'll just hit a couple verses here. Verse 13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless 
uh, chasing after the wind. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16, he goes another section where he talks about the meaninglessness of knowledge. He ends up by saying in verse 16, For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the, the wise too must die. This is the, the foolish person and the, the person with lots of knowledge both end up at the same place. They both end up dying. Well, in the scripture passage that we read, he concludes um, in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And We might have some students here that would say amen, amen to that. Uh, of making many books there is no end. Um, I looked at the Library of Congress states that its collection of books in the Library of Congress would fill about 838 miles of bookshelves, holds more than 167 million items, <laughs> books and pamphlets. <laughs> That's what Solomon's saying. There, there's no end to this whole matter of study knowledge. Solomon goes on in the first part of chapter 2 and talks about pleasure, hedonism, just living to, you know, um, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And there's many people in our world today that live by that philosophy, that uh, believe that uh, annihilism, that the grave is the end. And so uh, let's just get as much enjoyment out of this life as we can. And Solomon goes on that journey with, uh, like I mentioned, endless resources. And so, uh, again, we won't read the, this section, but he tries laughter, verse 2 of chapter 2. Laughter is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? So if Solomon was here today, he, he would go out to all the comedy clubs and, and try to find meaning and, and satisfaction in, in laughter, uh, verse 3, wine. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. So he tries wine. Perhaps Solomon had a collection of the world's greatest uh, wine collection in, in his day. He tries great projects. Uh, I built houses for myself. I had vineyards, gardens, and parks with all kinds of fruit trees and reservoirs. Verse 7, he had slaves. Uh, that uh, would attend to him. Uh, he says, I owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And we know about uh, that part of Solomon's life too, don't we? 700 wives, 300... Uh, concubines. And Solomon's saying, I tried everything. And what's his conclusion in chapter 2? I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
And so Solomon looks at the cyclical nature of life. Uh, he looks at knowledge and trying to gain more and more knowledge. He tries pleasure, hedonism, and he's still saying, I can't find satisfaction and meaning. As we go over to chapter 4, he looks at the world and he sees um, oppression in the world. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And so Solomon looks at life, and this is true in our world today, and he's discouraged because he sees oppression. Think about Ukraine today. Think about the millions of people that have had to flee as refugees, uh, refugees and upset their whole lives. Why? Because of an oppressive force that wants to take over their country. And hundreds of people, innocent civilians, have, have died and are oppressed. And, and uh, that's what Solomon sees. And, and to him, it's, it's, it's depressing and it's discouraging. He goes on to look at uh, try wealth and riches. And again, we, he was the richest person on the planet when he wrote this. And later on in the book, you can see his, his wealth was uh, worldwide known. The Queen of Sheba comes and visits him just to get a glimpse of the wealth of King Solomon. And so we read about that in verse chapter 5, verse 10. He says, whoever loves money... Never has enough. Let that sink in. Uh, Timothy writes, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. And Solomon, who had more than anybody, he says, the love of money, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Why? As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. They're up at night wondering about their investments and how they're going to protect all their money. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. He goes on and on to talk about um, that wealth does not satisfy. Verse 11, he says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The story of Mike Tyson, who was the world championship boxer back 15 or 20 years ago. Mike, Mike Tyson in 2003 filed for bankruptcy. A New York Times article stated that he had made $400 million in the two previous decades. So here's a man that in the previous 20 years had made $400 million and he's filing for bankruptcy. The New York Times article said that in 2003, he had $23 million in debts and he owed $13.4 million to the IRS. 
the article goes on to say that Tyson spent his wealth on cars, jewelry, and mansions. He at one time paid $2 million for a golden bathtub for his wife. At that time, his wife was Robin Givens. And he had a huge entourage of people around him that he paid lavishly. And after earning $400 million, he files for bankruptcy. Well, the premise of Solomon and Ecclesiastes 1 is that I can't find meaning, true satisfaction in life. And then he goes on this journey and uh, he goes through all these uh, ways of trying to find meaning that, that we've just looked at. But what we want to think about now is the, the prescriptive conclusion. So Solomon, after all this, tell us your conclusion And I want us to think about four key truths that uh, we really could need to take home with us this morning as we think about the purpose and meaning in life. So they're all found in chapter 12. So here is here is the first one, the prescriptive conclusion. Remember God when you are young. That's verse 1 of of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then in the next uh, six or seven verses, Solomon describes the aging process. It's very symbolic there. And uh, that's a little bit of a discouraging passage to read as well. But the main point of Solomon is, remember God when you are young. Many people think about their goals, their dreams, and in the end they'll say, well, maybe toward the end of my life, I'll kind of give some serious thought to to God and figure that all out. And that can be a drastic mistake. Let me tell you about my friend Carl. I've shared about Carl in um, previous uh, times. But um, my friend Carl, I was part of our previous church. Um, Carl and, uh, was an attorney uh, with a law firm um, over toward Detroit, um, his dad and his uncle were partners in the law firm, and then uh, Carl was part of the, the law firm. And uh, had the privilege of being the, the, his family's pastor for a number of years. But uh, on Sundays, uh, his wife would be there every Sunday. His three children would be there every Sunday. But Carl just, um, as he admitted to me later, you know, I, I was kind of busy with my law life and I kind of had my eye on that corner office and knew that eventually that might be mine and I was just really, really consumed with my work as a lawyer. And so in my mind, I logically thought, you know, someday when life slows down and I'm not as busy, I'll give some thought to some spiritual things and God. Carl would occasionally come, maybe on Christmas and Easter, but um, that was his mindset. 
I'll never forget the phone call that I got one afternoon, and um, it was from someone in Carl's family, probably his wife, and uh, Carl and his father and his uncle were on a hunting trip. It was a Sunday afternoon, and as they were making their way back to Michigan, uh, their car got T-boned by another car at a very fast rate of speed. And Carl's uncle was killed, and Carl's dad was injured, and uh, my friend Carl was in the back seat and uh, ended up with a severe head injury. I remember going to the hospital, and there in the ER waiting room is his wife and uh, his brother-in-law and sister-in-law, not knowing whether Carl would live. Carl spent three weeks um, or so in uh, University of Michigan Hospital and uh, years and years recovering from that accident. He still lives today with the effects of a brain injury, lost the sight in his one eye. Um, but I'll tell you what happened out of all that. Carl reevaluated his life. Carl began to look at life through the lens of eternity. And several months after that accident, I've had the privilege to just kind of walk through with Carl the gospel, and Carl came to faith in Jesus. And for the last 25, 30 years, uh, Carl and his wife have been a stalwart in my previous church that I pastored and, and have given their time and treasure and resources into God's kingdom. Remember God when you're young. And I was reminded this morning as I was thinking about this and just about how short and brief life can be. It was earlier this year where three um, students from Clinton High School were in a car accident. I think it was four, actually. I think three of them died. And you think about graduation time, and here's these parents that... Um, it should be, you know, our, our son should be graduating. And our son's no longer. And so Solomon says, remember God when you're young. To his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Well, the second key truth of Solomon's prescriptive conclusion is to fear God. And we get to the end of the book in verse 13, and he says, Now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. The Hebrew word yare, it speaks of a, a reverence, a holy reverence. It speaks of respect. What does it mean to fear God? Here, one, one article shares these words. A biblical fear of God for the believer includes understanding how much God hates sin and fearing his judgment on sin. As children, the fear of discipline from our parents no doubt prevented some evil actions. The same should be true in our relationship with God. We should fear his discipline and therefore seek to live our lives in such a way that pleases him. So fearing God means having such a reverence and respect for him that it has a great impact on the way we live our lives. 
The fear of God is respecting God, obeying Him, submitting to His discipline, and worshiping Him in awe. So Solomon says, remember God when you're young. Fear God. But then he says, this third prescriptive truth is, and keep His commandments. So part of this reverence and fear for God is obeying God. And so how do we know what God wants us to do? Well, it's all found in this book. And the Bible says, keep his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so fear God, but obey him. Jesus summarized it for us in the New Testament and kind of simplified things with all the commandments that are in Scripture. And uh, someone came up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, was one of the experts in the law, and asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so Jesus summarized it. They were trying to trap him and trick him into saying something that they could say, aha. But here he summarizes all of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said, let me simplify all this for you. Love God with every fiber of your being and love others just like you love yourself. Uh, Solomon says, I want you to remember God when you're young. And I want you to fear God, and I want you to obey his commands. And over and over again in the Bible, we've got, especially in the New Testament, these commands to love one another. Love one another. I remember in the story, and I think it's a true story, of a a guest speaker that was at church one day, and he was sitting there, and it was time for him to preach, and some people were very much looking forward to him opening up the scriptures and preaching that day. And uh, he got up from where he was seated and went to the pulpit, and uh, he spoke three words. And he said, love one another. And then surprisingly, after just speaking three words, he went and sat down. And there was a little bit of a an uneasiness that came across uh, those that were there and like, okay, there's got to be something more to this. And it was kind of an awkward quiet. About a minute and a half later, he got back up, walked over to the pulpit, and he said, love one another. He went back and sat down. And again, uh, there was a pause, and there's uh, now people were beginning to talk to one another, and like, you know, what's what's going on here? And this isn't the sermon that we expected. He got up a third time. He came to the pulpit. He said, "Love one another," and then he sat down. By this time, the people that were there were a little like perplexed and like, okay, um, maybe he wants us to do something. <laughs> And so as he was sitting there, uh, uh, people began to get up or turn to their neighbor and begin to talk to them during the service and begin to find out, um, you know, how things were going in their life. And as that happened in one little small corner, it spread to another corner. And before you knew it, 
everybody in the congregation was huddled into groups of four or five, and they were all talking to one another, and they found out some needs that were in each other's lives, and they were ending, uh, ended up praying for one another. And uh, when the pastor saw that, he you know, got up and at the end said, love one another. And uh, it was just the practical application of those three words. Remember God when you're young and fear God, obey God. And then lastly, Solomon concludes the book uh, with these words in Ecclesiastes 12:14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the fourth prescriptive truth that Solomon shares is there will be a final exam. Solomon says there's a day of accountability for every person. You know, when I was in uh, college, I learned, uh, and I didn't know this before I went to college, but um, you can take a class for credit. Or you can audit a class. And when you audit a class, uh, you're not taking it for credit. And so you don't really have to do the homework because you're not getting a grade. You don't have to take the test. You don't have to um, do that if you don't want to. You're just auditing the class for your own knowledge. There's a big difference between someone that is auditing the class and someone that's taking it for credit where there's an accountability day, you're going to get a letter grade and you're either going to graduate or not graduate. The people that are taking the class for credit take it much more seriously. And what the scripture says is there's a final exam someday. We're all going to have to stand before God, give an account. For the person that doesn't know Jesus, that's the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 12. I saw the dead, both small and great. They're all standing before God. They're all going to have to give an account. And I opened up the books to see if their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. There's an accountability. You're either in the Lamb's book of life or you're not. And that's where we read about the second death. For the believer, our our accountability day comes when we stand before God someday, and it's called the, uh, some people call it the Bema Seat Judgment. We read about it in Romans chapter 14. The Apostle Paul writes, uh, the last part of verse 10, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So the Apostle Paul says there's a day coming where we're going to stand before God And he's going to evaluate us, not for salvation, but how we've used our time, talent, and treasure to invest in his kingdom. Not only he's going to evaluate what we've done, but here's the scary part for me. He's going to evaluate our motives. He's going to know why we've done it. 
to look good or to serve our risen Savior. And so Solomon says, remember, there's a final exam. I think the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8 kind of summarize what Solomon is trying to tell us in uh, the conclusion of the book in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And Jesus said these words, Whoever wants to find their life will lose it. In other words, you want to live for yourself and just selfish gain and pleasure, you're going to end up losing your life. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You want to have a life of meaning and significance and purpose. Uh, that is where it is found. And so I discovered there's a place called the Denver Institute in conclusion for faith and work. Denver Institute, it's not called Denver Institute in conclusion. I'm saying in conclusion, there's a place called the Denver Institute of Faith and Work. It exists to help Christians discover their calling and to live it out through their work. Here's what they have to say. God is forming each of us to live an unrepeatable life. Each of us has gifts and aptitudes and experience to contribute something, however small, in service of God and neighbor that cannot be duplicated by anyone else. Personal stewardship means taking responsibility for the work which cannot be done by anyone else. That echoes the truth of Scripture that God has gifted all of us and he wants us to use that time, talent, and treasure for him. So I trust you found the significance of life. It starts by realizing who Jesus is, what he's done, and giving your life to him. But then as Solomon wrote, as he looked at his life, he says, I want you to remember God, not on your deathbed, although it's never too late to turn your life around. But remember him now. Remember him when you're young. And I want you to fear him, reverence him, worship him, obey him, and you will live a life of purpose, meaning, and significance. And someday you'll stand before God, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, Thank you for this book that you have uh, sovereignly placed in our scriptures. Thank you that we can, uh, 3,000 years later, read about Solomon's story. Thank you that we can learn from some of his mistakes. And Lord, I pray uh, not just for our graduates and young people that are here today. But I pray for all of us that we will not make the mistake of just saying, well, I'll figure it out, my relationship with God someday. Help us to realize that that day may not come. Help us to realize that the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Help us to remember God now. Lord, may we fear and reverence and worship you. Lord, may that be evidence in a life that desires to obey you and walk in truth. Lord, thank you for um, the fact that you have a plan for our lives. 
not to harm us, but to give us hope in a future, as Jeremiah 29, 11 says. And Lord, we know that was written to Israel, but I think we can apply it to our lives. You, you have a plan for us, and it's your perfect plan. Lord, would you reveal that to us um, and uh, help us to follow you in obedience? And now uh, we thank you now. Uh, we love you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.